church. Wonderful to see everybody. I'm looking forward to next weekend, Christmas Eve morning and evening uh, services, but I know probably many of you might be traveling, so I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas. If you're not going to be here this next weekend, I hope you have a wonderful time with your family and safe travels. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you could open up to Matthew chapter 1. Christmas is a mission. Now, parents, it's not a mission to find uh, the best deal on all the holiday gifts that you're hoping to get for the kids, uh, or it's not a mission for you to figure out how to keep the kids occupied until they're back in school in a couple of weeks. Uh, And kids, Christmas is not a mission to find a way to make sure that you secure that new favorite toy, the Tickle Me Elmo. I'm sure that's really popular again. And it's also not a mission for all of us to gain 15 pounds in cookies and pecan pie and hot chocolate, though many of us will do just that. But Christmas was a mission designed by God to save the world. God was rescuing an estranged people and bringing them back to himself. And how was he going to do it? We just sang about it through Emmanuel, God with us. If you think about it, Emmanuel was God's original design for creation. Adam and Eve dwelled with God in the garden. They walked with him. They saw him face to face. And they enjoyed a world of just perfect beauty. No sin, no suffering, no sadness. That's how God intended creation to be. And in fact, that will be how the new creation is. We will one day again be with God face to face, no sin, no suffering, no sadness, no death, and it will be forever. But what happened? You had Emmanuel at the beginning, we'll have Emmanuel at the end, but where are we now? We're in this state of separation, of sin, and rebellion, and Emmanuel was forfeited in the garden. And so how are we going to get from Emmanuel then to Emmanuel in the future? Emmanuel is the answer. God is going to come to be with us. And that's what we celebrate. There was no way for us to get back to God. He had to come to us. And it's interesting that it's a rescue plan for Emmanuel so that we would be with God again And it's a rescue plan through Emmanuel, God coming to be with us. And Christmas still represents a mission designed by God to save the world. He's still doing his saving work. It wasn't just that he did it once, but he continues to save up until the day when we are with him face to face. Christmas has never been about the nice getting what they deserve because they've been good for goodness sake. Christmas is about the naughty getting what they would have never deserved. Forgiveness from God. Fellowship with God. It's interesting that, you know, our culture, we've sort of made Christmas the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you get, you're an undeserving person, and you get gifts that you don't deserve. And we've made Christmas, you know, with Santa Claus, right? Who does he give gifts to? The ones on the nice list. The naughty people get nothing. And as Christians, sometimes we're tempted to live that way. We'll be nice to the people that are nice to us. 
But no, Christmas is about we are like God. We want to give gifts to those who don't deserve it. He gave us grace and mercy and salvation when we didn't deserve it. And let every Christmas remind us that we're called to do the same thing, to show grace and mercy and forgiveness to people that don't deserve it. Let us be like God, not like Santa Claus. And so what I want to remind us this morning are two things that come through God being with us. First is comfort. Comfort we need because of our sin and because we live in a world affected by sin. But the other thing I want to remind us is that we get confidence. God being with us is a source of great confidence for us because he's still on a mission to rescue the world and he wants to use us. And so we're going to look at comfort and confidence. I want you to experience both of those things through Emmanuel. So let's read our passage, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, and then we'll pray. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, these are familiar verses, verses we hear just about every year around this time. And it's easy just to think about them as just a tradition, something we read, something that happened a long time ago but maybe doesn't affect us very much now. But I pray that you would remind us of just how incredible it is that your son came to save us from our sins, that he became a man, so that he could live a life as a man and die a death as a man so that we might be forgiven. I mean, we sing these songs, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. How could God become a man? Why would God become a man? But he did it for us. Because there was no way of us getting back to you. You had to come to us. And we're so thankful that you did. May that be the source of great comfort this morning. That you didn't have to come, but you did. Because you delight to show love and mercy and compassion and grace to those that don't deserve it. And may that stir us to want to go and share those very same things with the rest of the world that doesn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it when we received it. And may we be just thrilled and confident to know that you could use even us, because you're still with us, to bring hope and comfort to a world that is in desperate need. 
And so do those two things. Comfort us with the reminder of why Christ came for us and give us great confidence that we would continue your mission in the world of saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now to truly appreciate the comfort and the confidence that come from the fact that God is with us, we need to think for a moment about what is life like without Emmanuel, without God being with us. If you go to Matthew 1.1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now there's about 4,000 years of history packed into that one statement that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. So it's hard for us to really sense the magnitude of a statement like that. But it's like creation and humanity, up until the point when Christ was born, had been waiting thousands of years for God to fulfill his promise. He said back in Genesis 3 that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. He said there'd be a son of Abraham who would bring blessing to the nations. He said there'd be a son of David who would be a true king who would reign forever. And they've been waiting thousands of years for that person to come. And he's finally coming. I mean, think about this. I mean, think about it. It's like the month leading up to Christmas, right? It's just filled with excitement and anticipation, right? You know, you start to put the Christmas tree up, now, if you're the Howards, you put your Christmas tree up November 1st, not December 1st. But that's, the reason they do that is because they love this time of year. It's excitement. It's anticipation. Music starts coming on the radio. 96.5 KOIT starts playing Christmas music all the time. Presents start popping up under the tree. You get excited. You know, I know the shape of that one. That's the Furby that I've been really wanting. Or you start weighing it out. Okay, that's the Brandy Melville hoodie. That's probably that one. Oh, here's the new cat sweater that I've been dropping hints that I get that from my spouse or my, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. And all these things that you're desperately waiting for December 25th. But you keep looking at your watch like, what, December 17th? It's like eight more days? How am I going to last eight more days before I get to see these gifts that are under the tree? It's exciting, and yet in another sense, it's excruciating to wait. Now take that, and and multiply it by 4,000 years. Not eight days, not a month, but thousands of years you're waiting for this promised gift to arrive. And it's a gift that is infinitely better than any earthly gift that we would ever receive. To truly appreciate Emmanuel, you need to have a sense of how much and how long the world has been waiting for him to come. As I said before, Emmanuel was God's original design for creation. Adam and Eve lived with God, without sin. The world was perfect. Every need was met. God poured out everything that they needed day after day. They walked with God in the cool of the day. But they, like us, decided... I don't know if I need Emmanuel. I think I know better what's going to make me happy than God does. God says, don't eat from this tree, you'll die. They say, well, maybe, but 
I think I know better. And they forfeited Emmanuel. They gave it away. And to think about the devastating effects of the loss of Emmanuel. God promised Eve that she would have a son that would crush the head of the serpent. Who was Eve's first son? Cain. What did he do? He murdered his brother. Sin has devastating effects. A lot of of times we try to gloss over it, pretend it's not that bad. Oh, just little mistakes, little white lies. No, sin is devastating. It's devastating to you, and it's devastating to those around you. It's only five chapters later that we read this in Genesis 6-5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's life away from the presence of the Lord. It's strife, it's hatred, it's murder. That's life apart from God. And as people, that should humble us and cause us to go back to God, but it doesn't. Genesis 11, what do they do? We'll fix this. We don't need God. We'll build a tower to heaven. We'll get back there, and we don't need God's help. And we've been building towers ever since. Erecting lives that say we don't need God. We've got modern medicine. We've got this. We've got that. All my needs are met. I don't need God. We find our identity in anything but God. Or we'll put our trust in kings. That's what the people of Israel did, right? We need a king. That's the answer. All these other nations, they have kings. We need a king. What did God say? God said, I would have been your king. And we've been putting our trust in men ever since. If I could just find the right policy, if we could just find the right politician, then all of our problems would be solved. But for every David... There's a hundred Saul's and worse. Or we think if I could just find a girlfriend or a boyfriend, or if I just was married to the right person, then life would be better, life would be fulfilling, and I wouldn't feel this sense of disappointment. Whether it's towers or kings, they all end in disappointment. And this this might be where you are today clinging to a hope that a politician or a policy is going to save you. Building your life on something other than the Lord. Clinging to the notion that you're good enough. You don't need him. You're holding on to your sin, and yet you're suffering for it. And this is a bleak picture. It's a picture that should create a sense, like just a drop in your stomach. You need God to be with you. You need Emmanuel. Nothing else is going to help. Stop putting your hope in politicians and policies and anything else. Nothing else will help. They will all end in disappointment. Now just think about this for a moment from God's perspective. 4,000 years of people living in rebellion against him forfeiting all the blessings that he wanted to give to them. 
If you were God, how would you come to your people? If you think about it, Emmanuel is actually a terrifying concept if you're a sinful people. If I have sin, if I've done everything in my life has been against God, and then I hear the announcement that God is going to come, that's scary. It should be scary. Like, we deserve judgment. So how does God respond? How does God respond to a people clinging to their sin? How does he respond to people trying to build their life on anything other than him? How does he come to people who are fixing their hope on earthly solutions rather than looking to him? He comes to rescue them. He comes to save them from their, their self-imposed sin. He comes to save you from your self-imposed sin and judgment. And that's the first thing we want to look at. Experience the comfort of Emmanuel. Instead of fear, there is comfort for those that are experiencing the burden of their sin. God is with you. Look back at verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I know it's tempting to look at this and sort of put ourselves in Mary's shoes and Joseph's shoes. What would I have done? But the focus of attention here is Jesus. Look at how is Mary introduced in verse 18. When his mother. What's significant about Mary? She's the mother of who? Jesus. How is Joseph introduced in 19? Her husband, Joseph. Right? All of the links in the chain lead back to Jesus. Joseph is only significant because he's the husband of Mary. Mary is only significant because she's the mother of Jesus. Jesus is the focus of the attention because his birth is unlike any other birth that has ever happened. Look back at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. And we can go on and on and on and on. For several verses, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But now look at verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph. How should the verse go? Joseph was the father of Jesus. But it doesn't say that. It says Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jesus is different than all of the other people listed in this genealogy. Jesus had no biological earthly father. And Matthew wants us to make sure we get, keep your focus on Jesus. Something's happening in Jesus that has never happened before. He's unique. He's different. Now, of course, Joseph has a little bit of a problem believing all of this. In verse 19... He says he didn't want to put her to shame, but he resolved to divorce her quietly. You can just imagine that conversation, right? Mary comes to Joseph. Babe, crazy story. So good news, I'm pregnant. Uh, bad news, you're not the father. But, but, but it's not what you think. It's the Holy Spirit. He's God, this is God's son that's dwelling in my womb. You remember a few weeks ago when we were reading Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and it talked about a virgin will conceive? Well, I'm the virgin. And Joseph's like, 
Yeah, right, Mary. You know how many Jewish girls have got into a tight spot and they've claimed Isaiah 7.14 is the reason they're in the situation that they're in. He's not buying it. But an angel tells him the truth in verse 20. But as he considered these things, he considered putting her away. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, the point here is not what would you do if you were Joseph. The point here is that God is doing something extraordinary. His son is coming into the world, and his son is going to save his people from their sin. You get glimpses of that, right? How is Joseph described by the angel in verse 20? Joseph who? Son of David. The king's coming. The son of David is coming. The true king who will reign forever. The one who will crush the head of the serpent. The one who takes away the sins of the world. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who will be crushed for the iniquities of his people will be healed by his wounds. This one's coming. And this is the comfort that you need. He will save you from your sins. There's a lot of things that Jesus does for us as believers. Can he fix your problems? Absolutely. Can he make your life better? Of course he will. But the chief thing that he came to do is to save you from your sin. Your sin deserved judgment. And there was no hope that you would ever be able to do more right than wrong. It doesn't work that way. You had no hope of salvation, and so he came to you. So you wouldn't have to put vain hopes in policies or manufacture an identity or continue to be a slave to your sin. He came to save you from your sins. And Matthew doesn't want you to miss it. He jumps in in verse 22 to tell us what this is all about. Verse 22, all this took place. If you've missed it thus far, this is what I want you to see. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is going to dwell with his people again. For 4,000 years, he wasn't with his people. People were away from the presence of the Lord. And now he's coming again to be with his people. Now again, stop and think for a moment. How should God come? 4,000 years in rebellion. How should God come? In judgment and in condemnation. And yet, how does he come? Offering mercy and forgiveness. Think about the ministry of Emmanuel. Think of what does Jesus' ministry look like in the book of Matthew. He shows compassion. To those suffering the effects of sin, he heals the sick, the lepers, the lame, the blind, the demon-possessed. He has compassion for those who are dealing with the harsh realities of life in a fallen world. But more than that, he's offering you salvation and forgiveness to your sins. Think about him on the Sermon on the Mount. He's pleading with you to repent of your sin. We take pride in, oh, I never killed anyone. I never committed adultery. 
And he's saying, yes, you do. You do it in your heart almost every day. You hate people. You lust after people. Now, he's not doing that to condemn us. He's doing it to wake us up. We need him. All the good things you think you do. Oh, you give, you fast, you pray. You do them for yourself. You don't do them for me. Wake up. I came to save you from your sins. And of course, the greatest example of his compassion and sacrifice is the cross. He's being murdered by the people that he came to save. And what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, people are shocked at the compassion of Jesus. John the Baptist is shocked by the compassion of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verses 1 to 6. Matthew 11. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Do you catch what's going on? What was John's message? John is the herald of the Christ. But what is John's message? God's coming and he has an axe. That's John the Baptist's message. And it's true. But what's John's expectation? God's coming and he's going to bring judgment. And it would be perfectly right for him to do that. And so John's in prison... And he hears about the one I heralded, the one I said was to come, the one I said is the Messiah. What's he doing? He's healing the sick. He's giving sight to the blind. I'm in jail. Like, why is he doing it? Why is he showing compassion to sinful people? And that leads John to think, are you the Christ or not? Because what's he thinking? Emmanuel means God is going to set things right. Enemies are going to be stomped. I'm going to be delivered. And it's the compassion of Christ that makes John doubt if he's the Messiah. I mean, I think we're like that too. Jesus is shockingly compassionate in ways that we probably aren't many times. But Jesus said John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived. And he was shocked by Jesus' compassion. I mean, our message is similar to John the Baptist many times. God's coming. You better get your act together. And what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We're like the Pharisees. What is he doing eating with sinners and tax collectors? Doesn't he know who those people are? And Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is good news. Emmanuel means God wants to help you. 
to help you from what you truly need help from. I mean, we might think, no, I'm, my life is messed up. There's no way. Like, God should come with the axe. I don't deserve mercy. God can't, can't possibly love and forgive me. But he came for the worst of the worst. The worse you think you are, the more ready you are to receive what Jesus came to give. The more unworthy you feel, the more you qualify for his ministry of bringing God to us. What are the qualifications that we need to come to Jesus? What does he say? Come to me, all who are weary. Do you feel weary from your sin and from the trials of life? He says, come. Do you feel overwhelmed, burdened? He says, come to me. He is gentle. He wants to provide rest for your soul. Let him shock you with his compassion. He came to save you from your sin. When you find yourself in a mess of your own making, he is with you. You've made a complete mess of your life. You can't believe where you are compared to where you thought you would be. And you know it's your fault. He's with you. You've blown it again. You fell to that same sin that you promised, I'll never do that ever again. And you did it again. He's with you. He knows you and he is with you. And when your sin has wreaked havoc on the lives of other people, he's with you. Your marriage is broken. You don't have a relationship with your kids. You're estranged from your parents. He's with you. He knows you, and he's with you. And he has salvation to offer and comfort. Not only that, he came to save you from the effects of others' sin or the, 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 the effects of a fallen world. Your children have run away from the Lord. He's with you. You've been mocked, humiliated, persecuted at work or at home. He's with you. When you feel alone, forgotten, ignored, he is with you. When you find yourself dealing with the harsh realities of life in a fallen world, your body doesn't work the way that it used to. My mind, I can feel things slipping away and I can't do anything to pull them back in. He's with you. Death has taken those that you love dearly. He is with you. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned. He is present and he cares. He came to save you from sin. Your own and others. Emmanuel means that God is with you through all the ups and downs and twists and turns of life. And this life is filled with many twists and turns and ups and downs, but God will be with you through it all. So experience the comfort of Emmanuel. He came to be with you. But there's something else that happens when you experience the comfort of Emmanuel. You begin to want to share that comfort with others. You join him in his mission, right? Christmas was his mission to bring comfort to a world suffering the effects of sin. And now, as you receive that comfort, you want to be a part of the same mission that he's still doing. 
He's still bringing salvation. He's still bringing grace and mercy to people in need. So now the fact that he's with you, not only does it comfort you, it has a different aspect of it as well. It gives you great confidence. He is with me. As I go out and I continue his mission in the world, he is with me. And so I want us to experience not only comfort, but also the confidence of Emmanuel, that he is with us. Look at Joseph's response back in Matthew chapter 1. Verse 24. Said, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This might seem incidental, like, okay, great, what's, what's the point of all that? It's very significant, right? The angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means salvation. And so when Joseph awakes and the baby is born, what does he do? He calls the child Jesus, which means salvation. What's happening? Joseph is joining in with God's rescue mission for the world. He wants to participate with God in what God is doing in the world of bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. I don't think Joseph's the main character here, but he is a model character for us in many ways. I think two are highlighted in this passage. First, he's compassionate. And then second, he's obedient. Look at, the first, look at verse 19. Again, we sort of skip over this, but notice the logic of verse 19 says, and her husband Joseph, after hearing about Mary, being a just man, the word just there, also you could translate it righteous. He's a righteous man, and what does his righteousness lead him to do? He's unwilling to put her to shame and resolves to divorce her quietly. Do you see that? He's righteous. What does righteousness look like? Righteousness looks like compassion. I mean, think about it. Think of, I mean, he's hearing, your wife-to-be is pregnant. So what's his assumption? She's had an affair. She's committed adultery. Moments before we were to get married, she committed adultery. How would you respond to her? The law says she could be stoned. And yet this verse says, Joseph is righteous, and that righteousness is seen in, I don't want her to be put to shame. He sees her in what he perceives as sin. Sin against him. And what does he do? He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't yell and scream at her. He doesn't shame her and rub her nose in it. He doesn't get angry or try to hurt her. He says, I'm going to show compassion. And I'm going to divorce her quietly. I would wonder, if we, do we show the same compassion when we see people in sin? Even sin against us. This was sin against Joseph, his perception, right? Like, my wife committed adultery. And his heart overflows with compassion. I think many times we see a world in sin and we think they deserve whatever they get. I'm not going to be compassionate. And yet Joseph's compassionate. Joseph's also obedient. We looked at that just a moment ago, verses 24 and 25. He does exactly what the angel said to do. And it establishes a pattern, I think you see through the rest of Matthew's gospel, that those who experience the comfort of Emmanuel join in the mission of Emmanuel. 
I mean, think about it. Matthew 4, verse 19, Jesus calls his disciples and asks them, calls them to be what? Fishers of men. Right? I came on a mission, and I want you to join me in my mission. Matthew 10, he sends them out as sheep amongst wolves to go and share the good news. And the image you get throughout Matthew's gospel is like this snowball that rolls down this hill. And it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The people that experience the comfort of Christ then want to share the comfort of Christ with others. It's the bookends of this gospel. Look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18. It said, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, right? Continue my mission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And catch this, and behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age, right? Emmanuel at the beginning of the gospel, God comes to us. Emmanuel at the end of his gospel, God's still with you when you go out and you try to make disciples of all the nations. That's what he wants to do. The compassion that you've received from Christ, go tell other people about it. Share it. And when you do that, I'll be with you. When you join him on mission, you experience his presence in a way that you would never experience otherwise. I think sometimes we feel like, God, I want to feel your power in my life. Fill me with your presence as I sit here and watch TV and eat a bowl of cereal. I'm speaking to myself. That's what I tend to do a lot of nights. What does Jesus say? No, when you go out, when you try to make disciples, I'm going to be with you. You're going to feel my presence with you when you go out in my name and you seek to show the same compassion that I showed to a world that desperately needs it. Christmas is still about mission. It wasn't just about mission then. It's still about a mission. When we see people suffering in a mess of their own making, we get to enter in with the message of Emmanuel that there's forgiveness for you. There's mercy and grace that are available to you in Christ. When we see people experiencing the consequences of life in a fallen world, we get to enter in with the message of Emmanuel. God is with you. Whatever you're going through, he wants to be with you in the midst of it. If you want to experience the presence of God in your life, join with him on mission. Look at Matthew 18, another example. You call it kind of Matthew's gospel. is like this gospel of Emmanuel, God with you. Look at Matthew 18, an interesting place here. The context here is still, it's rescue, it's mission. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is mission. This is rescue. You go out into the world. You seek those lost sheep. Some of those lost sheep might be in your midst. That's what he says in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Right? You're on mission. You're seeking to restore. 
And what does he say at the end of all of this in verse 20? For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Right? That's not the prayer time verse, right? And it's interesting, like, Jesus is always with everyone everywhere, right? He's God. He's omnipresent. So why would he say that? If it's, in one sense, it's always true. Because he wants to provide encouragement and confidence that when you go out on mission to rescue lost sheep, I'm with you. I am with you. And you will experience my presence in a unique way when you go out. I mean, you might think, can God really use me to encourage a brother or a sister in a trial? I mean, what if I say the wrong thing? We should remember God's with us. Can God really use me to bring the gospel to places where people have never heard it? Yes, he's with you. He can do it. When ministry seems overwhelming, he is with you. Can God really use me to restore a brother or sister in sin? Yes, he will be with you. Can he sustain our family if we live sacrificially for others? Yes, he will be with you. And you will most experience his presence when you are actively seeking to be a part of his mission. The family and I, last night, we got to see the Nutcracker. The Benicia Youth Ballet put a production on. And it was just, I mean, it was so encouraging and fun and heartwarming. And you see, like, all of these kids, you know, from high schoolers all the way down to probably, like, you know, two- and three-year-olds out there performing. And it's just your heart just kind of melts and, like, overflows. And I think, like, that's that's how God views us. When we get out and we're on mission... It's like, and he sees us running all over the place, and some of us, we don't quite sure what to do, but we're going for it. Like, he's with us, and he delights to see it. Now, but there are some kids that weren't up on that stage. Why? Because they're afraid. What if I do something wrong? What if I mess up? What if I trip? And I think as Christians, there's many of us. We never get out there. We never get out there on mission. What if I don't know the right thing to say? What if I fall? It's like, he's with you. There was a little girl who ran across. She was probably two years old, and she just face-planted right on the floor. But it's like, no one says, like, look at that two-year-old. Like, no one's criticizing. It's like, we're like everyone's concerned. Like, oh, look at her. It's like, that's how we should be. Like, get out there. Run around. Do something for God. Share his compassion with the world. And he'll be with you as you do it. So Emmanuel is a comfort to us. It's confidence for us. I think just it's always good to end with Revelation 21. Emmanuel is where all of this is heading again. God with us. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Between now and there, Jesus entered in to give us comfort and confidence, to be a part of inviting people to that future. There's only two destinations for people. You're either going to be dwelling with God forever, or you will be away from the presence of the Lord forever. And Jesus came to invite us. So accept his invitation. Now you might think, well, how how does that work? How is it all possible? How is it that I can experience comfort instead of judgment? How can Emmanuel possibly be good news when I'm in sin? Or how can I experience confidence instead of fear living in a fallen world? This world is messed up. There's danger around every corner. My heart is messed up. What's the answer? Well, it's not just that Jesus was born. Jesus being born doesn't solve those problems. But the way that you get comfort from Emmanuel and confidence from Emmanuel is through the cross of Emmanuel. You get comfort instead of judgment because of the cross. Apart from the cross, you'd be looking at judgment, not compassion. But he can show you mercy because he experienced your punishment. He can pick you up again when you fail because there's no punishment to be poured out on you anymore. It's all been poured out on him. And he can offer you real comfort in a fallen world because you know that this world is not all there is. And that he's taking you to a future where you will be with him face to face forever. How do we experience confidence instead of fear when we're out in the world? Because of the cross. In the cross, he triumphed over evil. He put all of the rulers and principalities to open shame through the cross. He offers real confidence because his victory has been won. His church will be built, and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. It's not going to fail. When you run out there on mission to show compassion to the world, it won't fail. Every word you say will never return void. It's going to accomplish something. He's continuing to build his church. He's even going to use us. And so may the experience of Christ's comfort and compassion give you confidence to join him on mission. Let Christmas not just be a reminder of what God did for you, but let it be a reminder of what God wants to do now even through you, of bringing his hope, bringing his comfort to a world that is in desperate need. We get comfort, punishment paid, sins forgiven. And we have every reason for confidence because Christ will build his church. The cross guarantees it. Let's pray. Father, anytime I think about us being involved in what you're doing, the first thought is always like, who are we? We should see it as a privilege to be involved in what you're doing. From a human perspective, there's fear. But if we see it rightly, we have received a gift that we never could deserve. We've been forgiven of our sins. 
We've been reconciled to you. Not through a birth, but through a death. The death of your son in our place. And I hope that Christmas is a reminder of that. That we were saved from our sins. And that as we look forward to being with you forever for all eternity, that it would lead us to want to go out and join you in the work that you're still doing. Until the day your son returns, you're going to be saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we want to be part of it. We want to be part of it here in Hercules, in Panol, Rodeo. We want to be part of it even to the very ends of the earth. Father, if we know your comfort, if we know your mercy, if we know your compassion, may we join you in the family business of showing grace and mercy and compassion to people in sin. May we not have a prideful attitude, but may we have the attitude of your son who was a servant, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do great things through us. We want to see this church filled. Not for our reputation, but for yours. You deserve the worship. You deserve this to building to be filled. First service, second service. Let's do an evening service. But however many services it, we need to do. Because you're still saving. Use us. Don't pass us by. Thank you for the gift of your son. We pray in his name. Amen.